Welcome to Parenting Vanessa Clones Podcast. All right, it's a little bit about me. I'm a family interventionist. I have started this school, a nonprofit that is a K through eight, which specializes in social emotional learning, which is KFS school, along with the three R method that works on self-regulation and body awareness, along with the social emotional learning that builds on the relationships of the child and whoever they're working with, parent or teacher. And I just have a lot to offer when it comes to interventions with kids of all ages. And it's really important for me that people have have more tools on a toolkit when it comes to parenting. Welcome to Parenting Vanessa Cologne. I am very excited about having Dr. Bridget Ostrom from UCSF here, and we're going to be discussing a lot of different topics. So I'm going to have her introduce yourself. <laughs> Go ahead. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Um, yep. My name is Dr. Bridget Ostrom. I'm a pediatric neurologist. I work at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, I see patients of all ages, really, from infants and even fetuses up through early 20s. Um, And I also have a research program where I'm focused on therapeutic development for neonatal brain disorders. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) How do you do it all? (laughs) Uh, One day at a time and with lots of um, checklists and uh, sometimes late nights. And you also are a parent, am I right? That's right. I'm a parent. I have two kids, a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. Right. So let's, I want to talk about how you are, you know, I want to just learn more about the infant piece. I'm just fascinated on just, if you can go a little bit more into details on like what you're doing with infants, because you're also seeing clients and then you're also doing the research. So how is that working for you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm happy to talk about that. And I, I try to have my research and clinical work tie in together and complement one another. So um, on the on the clinical side, one of the services in the hospital that I work on is called the Neurological Intensive Care Nursery or the NICN service. Okay. Um, and so uh, we take care of babies, neonates, who have various brain disorders and brain injuries. Um, they may have seizures, they may have a bleed or a stroke in the brain. Brain disorders in babies are a lot more common than I think people realize if they haven't had any personal experience um, with with issues like that. And then on the research side, so I have a research laboratory and also a clinical research program where I'm focused on identifying new treatments for certain types of baby brain disorders. And so we use uh, cell culture models and animal models of neonatal brain disorders to try to screen through potential drug treatments and then do validation and testing, ultimately up through clinical trials in babies. So when the babies are in the hospital, are you also working with the families or yeah. is it the, so it's the whole, the whole thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the whole dynamic. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And the, so the main hospital that I work in has just a fantastic multidisciplinary team where we work closely with social work, nursing, other physicians like neonatologists, um, physical therapists, occupational therapists, caseworkers, really everybody kind of together trying to do what's best for the baby, but also the family and to make sure we have a good plan for when the baby goes home so they'll continue to be supported. And then is there a, a transition plan for the parents? Because if you're, if you're looking at a baby, because just because my background with infant mental health, if the baby is reunited, are you, how is that process if they've been in the NICU for so long? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a big, that's a really, you know, mm-hmm. you're looking at attachment stuff. So a lot of focus has been um, put onto parent and infant interactions in the NICU even um, in recent years. So for instance, we've discovered that something called kangaroo care, which is where we try to keep the um, infant in skin to skin as much as possible, um, directly connected with usually usually the mother, um, that doing that as much as you can actually improves long-term neurological outcomes in babies. Right. And so there's been a lot of, uh, a big push at our institution, but also even worldwide um, in low and middle income countries to increase that type of care while the babies are still in the neonatal ICU to, to improve those attachments from early on. So getting into this, have you always wanted to do this? Because this is very, you know, specific and amazing what you're doing. Yeah. But I, is this like, how, I mean, how did you get into this? <laughs> definitely. I mean, I guess it is pretty pretty niche, but I've always been really interested in the brain, um, how the brain works and signals across our body, how we, uh, you know, think, control our movements, emotions, what's the, what is the kind of chemical and anatomical substrate for all of that. And so I, from early on in my undergraduate studies at University of California, Los Angeles, um, started to learn more about this. I was a neuroscience major in college. And then the more I learned, the more fascinated I became. So I got more involved in research during undergrad. And after after undergrad, um, I then went to graduate school and medical school at UCSF here in San Francisco, um, where I further studied brain development um, with a specific eye towards neonatal and fetal brain development, how it could be affected in disease, different types of disorders, um, and then potentially how we could um, act to modify um, and treat neonatal brain disorders to improve outcomes. So it just sort of organically grew out of a longstanding interest into the specific focus. That's a lot, but it's amazing. <laughs> How do you take care of yourself? <laughs> Cause also you do have, you know, you also have, you know, your husband's very busy too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, I'm glad you yeah. asked that because I think that's really, really super important and I couldn't take care of my kids or my patients without also taking care of myself. And so I will, um, I'll be honest. I went for a run today at lunchtime. Great. And, um, so I often, uh, I often use time when I would otherwise be maybe taking a break to do specific self-care things. Um, and such as, such as exercise, which is really important to me. Um, I also, for the past year or so have made an effort to read more fiction and whether that's just like listening to an audiobook on the way to work instead of listening to depressing news, for instance. <laughs> I, I get that one. <laughs> yep. Um, and so I've been able to keep up with that and my husband's doing that as well. Um, and so yeah, little bits every day. I think it's that that little those little bits like add up, right? Yeah. And they do make a difference on there. And then um, for sure. <laughs> so I also the, the listeners don't know how I know you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you want to explain it? Definitely. So so my my son, my four year old, goes to your school yes. KFS, um, and it's just been a, a really fantastic experience for our family. I think really helpful for him, um, and we we've valued your approach to, to kids who have maybe different or greater, um, 
needs, whether those be sort of behavioral needs or social needs, than other kids in standard larger school settings. Um, he, I know he definitely feels seen and heard and loved there, and he doesn't feel, um, even if he's having a, a difficult day, he doesn't feel like he's kind of a bad child, which is seems to be more of the approach at some other some other schools. Right. So you so you have been to other schools before mine. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so how is he at, I just did a, a podcast I mean a podcast on how d learning environments that are not looking at the whole child could be the wrong and so the child will if they are trying to you know, manage everything, the social, get everything going. Like they, by the end of the day, they're done. And that's where sometimes they will act out just because their body's completely mm -hmm. done. And because the environment, it's overstimulating. And so I feel like there needs to be more talk on just there's other, there's ways of learning, right? That are not the traditional. I mean, I don't, I feel like we should be moving away from more of the traditional because every kid is so different now. Mm -hmm. And I'm loving the fact that, you know, we're seeing, you know, he's like, I'm making great choices. <laughs> I'm making great choices. <laughs> I didn't do that. I didn't <laughs> do anything else. And so I, I just, I'm loving seeing him blossom. Mm -hmm. And my question for you is like, how are you seeing this outside of the school? Right. Cause I, to me, it's really important that this generalizes into the home yep. and out in the community. Cause a lot of times some of these kids don't get invited to birthday parties cause you know, it might be overstimulating. It might be too much. And some parents don't want it to go to the park cause then something will happen or whatnot. But are you seeing things different outside of this, of what, you know, the school? Yeah. I think that the biggest change is definitely just in how he, acts right after school and sort of talks about school generally. So a goal of ours with both our kids has always been to to have school be a positive experience to kind of <clears throat> love love learning, love the the uh, social interactions that they experience at school to feel like they are seen and heard and loved at school mm -hmm. and um and we definitely see that in my son now, um, whereas as previously, uh, when he went to, he's been to two other schools, preschools. I didn't realize it was two for some reason. I thought it was just one. Yeah, that he actually had a, a bad experience at a preschool related to a, a teacher's um, inappropriate behavior. Okay. And so then, then that sent him to the second school where you met him. Okay. Um, yeah. But anyway, at, at the other schools he was at, he would often be sent home in the middle of the day um, because he had acted out, um, had some poor impulse control, and then he would just feel really dejected and sad um, and seem to internalize that he was a bad child. And I firmly believe that there are no bad children. <laughs> no, hundred percent. I always say there's, there's, we have choices to make. So what choice do you want to make? Mm -hmm. Right. That could be a good choice or a bad choice, but we're not doing good or bad at all. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that, that was one of the messages is like, so what is your choice that you want to make right now? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, it, it seems that your approach is similar to how we try to interact with Lars at home in that we we are not afraid to kind of guide him step by step 
re, uh, through an inter, to, through redoing an interaction that mm-hmm. maybe he made poor choices in previously, um, instead of simply reprimanding him after he made the poor choice and then moving on. Um, and I think it's really helpful to to do that hands-on guiding and coaching through difficult interactions. I'm really happy you just said that because I don't think people understand. So, for example, you know, when I was struggling because of you know I have my own dyslexia, my own processing, and um, not that I would get in trouble, but it was like I would do something, you know, or, or a homework sheet or something was really difficult, and then you know it would just become, and turn into something else. But I didn't have a different way to do it because of my own learning issues. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like I see kids sometimes that they don't have the skill set, but they're being punished for not having a skill set. So if you, you know what I mean? So if you don't know how to ask someone to play, but you walk in and you do something to get their attention, then you get in trouble versus saying, hey, let me teach you how you could reenter that group again. And that's the key thing of what we're wanting, trying to teach. And that's where the three R's which we, that we have at the school, which is the redo, rewind, and repair, where we're going to redo it again. So, you know, if your kiddo is going to go up to a kid and, you know, hit because he wants to play, it's like, okay, no, let's redo that. We're going to give you the language and we're going to go back in. But And then we're going to do it. But I think we're, parents are so – you. I don't say parents, but I think it's just a lot easier to just say we're just not – you're not going to play with that person mm-hmm. versus teaching. And that's what's, what's missing. And then – yeah, I think also that that a lot of teachers that we've interacted with, at least in other settings and other schools, are a little bit nervous to do that hands-on guiding for children. And I think perhaps it's because of um, maybe having negative feedback from other parents who didn't want a teacher to so directly, quote-unquote, parent their child Um I'm not, I'm not really sure why <laughs> I was like, Oh, this one is a trick. So, okay. I, but like, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Because oh, that, that's been man, sort of you a, saw, an you impression just saw my of ours. <laughs> okay. So, um, I am known to be hands-on. Okay. So, and I, when I, there's certain schools that call me, I'm like, okay, they need someone hands-on because they can't. Everyone's here to get mm-hmm. sued. Exactly. And yeah. that's the problem. So kids aren't getting what they need. And so it's almost like, well, I can get away with this. And then it just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating. And then there's no, there's no stopping. So then what's going to happen to these kids that you go to public school, everything else, and nobody wants to be hands on. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that when I get a call with <laughs> some of them, I'm all, okay, I'm going to have to pick this child up and we're going to have to like do the redo and the rewind, but I'm going to have to be physically touching them. And that's what I'm known for. I'm able to turn it around. And I think that's what's needed. You know, for me, I'm looking at a child emotionally, like how are they going to, so when you hurt your friend, how do you feel afterwards? But I could block it and I can help them redo and rewind it. It's going to be a different feeling. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I tell the kids at the school, I have to protect your mouth from everybody. <laughs> I start yelling, you idiot. <laughs> right? I was like, you could say I'm mad. Mm-hmm. But it, and, but we can't do it until you're calm. <laughs> but, you know, I, I this is a problem that I see because I see a lot of kids that this can be easily redirected at a young age. But if we keep, keep going this way and the self-esteem drops and then there's all that shame that's going on, then we have another issue. And it just keeps going into first grade, second grade, third grade. Then what is going to happen? What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is once all these kids are like, oh, well, you're going to leave the classroom, you're missing all the education and the learning. And you're also learning how to get out of it and not learn. 
Yeah, I don't think that that sending a four-year-old child home from preschool teaches the lesson maybe that is needed to be able to successfully do a similar interaction in the future. 100%. Sure. You're right. Yeah, so then, so let me ask you then, given this approach that you've developed, how do you um, how do you start to train someone new? We, there's a new teacher at the school, for instance. Right. How do you um, how do you start to teach them how to interact with kids and the way that it's been so successful for you? Okay, well, I'm going to be honest. It's like sink or swim <laughs> in a nice way. <laughs> Being honest, and it's sink and swim in a way that I want to see how they interact with the child. Right. Cause I find that like, if I say do this, then everybody gets stuck on that one thing to do. So it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do baby steps. So that's how I do it with, with everyone. Mm-hmm. We're going to do baby steps. and like, okay, we're going to first go for the three R's. You're going to watch the language. Number one rules. We don't say sorry. That's uh, that like is a rule that just is like, we just know that's not, that is just not going to happen. Sorry is an action. Um, that's the first thing that they learn. Cause like you all of a sudden you'll say, 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 sorry wait, what? We're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go over that piece. We also go over what sensory integration is and how people like sensory processing and on that, we do that. But really it's the understanding that if you, I don't want to go into so much training, but if you can't play with a child, we have a, we have a problem. So I want to see how they play and how they interact. And from there, every kid is so different and they all have their own different needs. Like one of them might need two warnings. One of them, nope. What, you know, the rules, that's it. You don't get a warning Mm -hmm. because they know how many warnings you're going to get. And they're like, that's it. (laughs) You know, we have noticed that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Personal experience. Kids kids can figure out how many warnings you're going to give and uh, anticipate and get away with a a negative action is the first, first step. Yeah. (laughs) I do start out. One of the things I do, I start out with less hours at the beginning because I know it's a lot of work. I do actually have them start at like different parts and then go over and, and go over um, ways to do it. But really it comes down to the, the repair piece because that's all that matters to me. Because at the end of the day, like if they can't make a friend and they can't fake and they go home with that feeling, then that's a problem. And I also, and my, which I, maybe I have told you this or not, but you know, it, it's an internal, <laughs> what happens at school stays at school and what happens at home stays at home. We mm-hmm. don't report anything. Because to me, I want you to, I always imagine if you're at home with your kid and having this beautiful moment, and then I send you a text message during that moment that something came up, what's going to happen? The moment's yeah, gone. Yeah, angry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we appreciate that approach. I mean, certainly, I think parents want to know generally the trajectory of progress of their child and and what methods you're using with the child that maybe they could also implement at home. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that otherwise it, getting a, getting a daily report of any individual instance of kind of wrongdoing is not doing anybody any favors. <laughs> no. And I actually have a question for you, which I haven't asked this before. And I, whenever I get a, a new kiddo from another school, the amount of texts come in from those parents, which like, I don't remember if he did it or not. This is nothing to do if he did it or not. <laughs> so my question is, what was that feeling like knowing that you're not going to get a call? Oh, you know great. what I mean? Yeah. Oh, it's like, great. What was that feeling? But, but like, <laughs> I just, you know, it just, sometimes it's like, how, how, okay, I'm not, you're not going anywhere. I don't I've never sent a kid home mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. I've never expelled a kid, never suspended a kid. Won't do it. Yeah, you gotta that's work incredible. Through it. Yeah, I mean, we did see in the the guidance documents with the school that there are 
only very extremely severe behaviors that would <laughs> even be under consideration for needing to send a child home. Um, and we appreciate very much the fact that you are willing to work through different issues that come up um, as they come up and that there's not a constant threat to the child to be sent home or have an immediate call back home to families. And the other thing is once, once, and once the repair is done, to, in my mind, and we taught the new way, it's done. Mm -hmm. Like life is really that simple. The more we relive everything and the more we keep talking about it, which causes anxiety in the children. Right. So the, the less that we, we the less, that's my book, Shut Up and Parent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the less we could talk about it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me more about your book. <laughs> <laughs> remember i don't read that much but, I, but bullet points man if you're going if you're going to have a stressful day and you're having a stressful day and you're ready to like i don't know you're feeling really overwhelmed just put keep that book in the bathroom take a break in there go to the page and transitions and you can it'll, it's very really great like tools and strategies and things like that that um that will help any parent great hands-on kind like of hands-on strategies how to how to do the types of management you're talking about yeah great. like i went to a conference last year this is my first i actually presented but i went to a conference and i was really excited this education conference right and i was really excited to like learn all these new tools all i got was theory <laughs> where are the tools <laughs> I don't need the theory. Like, you know, it's, it's inter like how we do things. And it's like everybody who wants to be this big thing. And I'm like, well, what, what, where are the strategies? Mm -hmm. You know, what's going to work for you might not work, but like, I, I would like to, you know, I don't need to know the stats of something. My book doesn't have any of that. It's like, okay, if you say, you know, if your kid says this, then this is how you're going to do this. Right. And like, there's also one like why I don't believe in the word. Sorry. You know, I have a funny story. I had a, I had a, I had a client and he was really, really set on like his kids saying sorry. Okay. And I don't know if it's a culture thing or not. And the amount of money they spent on these sessions with me over this word. And I'm, I'm telling him, I don't want to do this. This doesn't make sense. But it always gets brought up again. So they kind of like brush it under. So I took a pen and I threw it at the dad. <laughs> oh dear. And I said, sorry. <laughs> he goes, he just looked at me and I'm all... <laughs> Okay, can I have the pen back, please? And I'm writing. I wait like, you know, seven, five, seven minutes. And then I threw it again. <laughs> I'm all sorry. Do you get it now? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I definitely understand that point of the, the point is the repair, not sort of saying the word sorry. But I think that kids also find other ways to try to make it better through words mm -hmm. um, that, that maybe then give them, um, let them justify the action that they just took. Yeah. So we notice in our son, for instance, that he'll say something unkind. Recently, he learned the word hate. And so he'll say, I hate that, or I hate you, or something like I that. He said, I hate KFS the other day to me. <laughs> he told me that as well. He's like, and I hate KFS. And I go, huh? <laughs> but he just told me, I love you, Vanessa. Yeah, goes, so Vanessa, the, I love you. I hate KFS. I'm all, huh? So, so yeah, so he'll say that to try to, I think he's just exploring that and what knowing it that it, yeah, what does it mean and how do, how do people react to that? Um, and so then we'll 
will tell him, oh, that, um, you know, that makes me feel sad when you say that. And then he will say, I love you, mommy. And I, I never will hate you. And I always want to hug you forever. And so (laughs) he really is adorable. But so I wonder, like, in that type of interaction, for instance, what would your advice be? Because I wonder, should I just completely ignore it? You know, should I not tell him that it makes me feel sad? What what do you think? So that's an interesting question. That that was okay. Um, So if he's saying I hate you, I would just move back to like, I'm mad. He's obviously feeling something. Mm -hmm. So try to give him the language. The the language instead of saying, I hate you, Mm -hmm. right? And like, and the other thing is when I hear parents say that makes me feel sad, to me, it's like, does your kid have that much control to change your emotions? Because that we're, what we're doing is, um, that's a lot of control. And then it, it also increases their anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, also it, while sometimes there is an emotional response, sometimes oh, I just 100%. say that to him so that he knows it's a thing that would make people feel sad generally you know whether or not i'm actually feeling sad or i'm sort of chuckling at the moment right um (laughs) and so what you're telling me is perhaps i should just try to look at why is he saying it what's Mm -hmm. the underlying emotion and help him name that and redirect as opposed to sort of responding specifically to his rude statement yeah i don't know where he's getting that by the way I'm trying know. to think of like what kid in my school <laughs> saying that right now, but it was really cute. He's like, Vanessa, I love you. I hate KFS. And I'm all, I just got too like, like, but it could also be that he wanted my attention. Mm-hmm. Right. So instead of saying, can you, can I, can, can I play with you or can you come give me a hug? Like I, I, I thought this would give me what I wanted, but there's usually underlying something else. So going and figuring out what that is. And then that I hate you is like, I'm really mad right now, even though I have no idea why I'm mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And usually if we're at home, there's a, there's a reason why, you know, we're trying to, he has to tell him he has to use the potty before we leave to go to the park and he doesn't want to, or something like that. Yeah. I would just <laughs> say, okay, well, we're not leaving till you yep. go. Let me know when you're ready. <laughs> not so that's my one liner. Let me know when you're yep. ready. And I, and that's it. And then he's like, <laughs> I do love the fact that, you know, he is the youngest and I got to tell you, he gets it, he fits so well with everybody up to the oldest. And, and that little kiddo, he's coming in. He's, you know, some days he's dressed as Elsa and everything else. And whatever he comes in, everyone respects whatever pronoun he wants, whatever it is. And if I say the wrong one, Vanessa, <laughs> he's like, this is what I am today. I'm like, okay. You know, and, and it's, it, it, it's great to see because I little bit was like, okay, he's really young, but he just, he has like, he has such a big personality too. Yes, he does. He does. He has like, and he's like, you're going to know I'm here. <laughs> and it's awesome. You know, and, and he's so bright. And that has been great to see him blossom. Because I also saw him at the other school too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he was more with, with help, with like withdrawn and just trying to like, you know, play. But then you, the, the play becomes, another thing is too, when you have so many kids in a classroom, it's overstimulating. So then it's like you, you get so rigid in one area because it's over because you weren't trying to block out other things. Right. And that's where like the wrong environment really doesn't help a lot of kids, especially at a young age when they're trying to learn these social skills and learn how to be taught mm-hmm. versus being sent home. I also don't believe in sending kids home. Kids will do things just to go home. I don't think people understand that. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. That makes sense. It's like, well, I don't want to be here. I want to go see mom and dad. I'm like, well, you'll see them at two thirty. <laughs> Let me know when you're done. Hot. 
<laughs> well, I have a question for you around around some of your management strategies at school. So how do you, so as a pediatric neurologist, I sometimes am involved in the diagnosis of different um different disorders or different um, diagnoses associated with neurodiversity, for instance, um, ADHD or autism. And if you have a child at your school who has received one of these diagnoses, how does it change, if at all, how you approach them um, and their behavioral challenges? Um, Okay, so I'm going to be very honest. I don't look at labels, and I've never read assessment in my life. (laughs) I'm being honest. All right. It's the kid. I get to know the kid. So I know this is probably like your doctor looking at me like, what? <laughs> it's true. I've never like, you'll send, I'll send them to, to my teacher, Brianna. She'll read it. But I'm like, okay, let me figure it out. And I, my thing is, how do you teach the kid to understand how they process information? Mm-hmm. But we also have like bike desks. They're constantly moving. So you're looking at ADHD and your other stuff. And like, because of dyslexia, we do Orton Gillingham. We actually do Orton Gillingham for all the kids. So all the kids are reading at a like a great I mean, they're amazing readers. Well, this I'm glad you're talking about this because my view is that some of these diagnoses are reflective of normal child behaviors that have just been taken to the extreme or that have become maladaptive, but a lot of kids may display behaviors associated with ADHD or autism who are otherwise considered typically developing. Right. And so I think that some of the tools and tricks and devices that can be useful for for somebody with an ADHD diagnosis in a regular classroom setting really should be given to and available to all kids. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I've that's how to, we do it. That's great. Yeah. I've had to write letters for somebody to be allowed a fidget in class, for instance, where oh, I wow, think there no. should just be a bin of fidgets for everyone. No. And that's really important for me that everyone is getting the same. So no one feels different on anything, but it's just our teaching how we do it. But everything is individualized. And also our kids are normally in the 90th percentile. So I'm not worried about them academically. It's just really that they know how to like get, not to get away with things, but they just know how to work the system a little bit, right? Like, how do I get home? Let me figure this out. That Those are my kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and it's not that I, I think because when I was trained to be a therapist, we had one hour and then you had to come up with a diagnosis and a treatment plan. I don't know how you could do that, right? And so that's kind of been my thing. And so I'm, when I see these assessments, I'm like, you know, some of it could be cut and paste. I don't know. Um, I just want to know the child. And so when p- parents call me for a consultation to go into a school, which I even think I told you this, I don't want no information. Mm-hmm. Let me go in and let me figure this out myself. And that's how I do it. And and then I, I think by looking at a diagnosis or a label, like I'm going to treat it as any I would any of my kids, you know, that, that are coming in. Because mm-hmm. it's all individuals anyways, but this has been great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's nice to hear. And I think probably a relief for parents whose kids are coming into your school that that you're not going to make any assumptions based off of labels that somebody else has given. No, I would never. That's. I don't even, I'm, I'm sure I have a ton of labels and I don't really need to know them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for ha- being here. And it was lovely having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was really, really great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Parenting with Vanessa Cologne. And if you have any questions about your child or want to hear other tips, please go to Vanessa's website, vanessacologne.com at V-A-N-E-S-S-A-K-A-H-L-O-N.com or email cologne family services at gmail.com.